0: Good morning again. My name is Rick Lyman. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Christ Church. I want to extend a warm welcome to those of you here in our sanctuary and also to all of you who are watching in our online broadcast today. Today is our Summer Communion Sunday and we'll be celebrating the sacrifice that Jesus made at what we call the Lord's Supper. It's the meal that he's prepared for us by the laying down of his own body. The Scripture gives us great direction in many different ways how to prepare ourselves for this occasion. And we're going to consider one passage of Scripture that will start out very familiar to you and then also explains to us how we can prepare ourselves best for our encounter with Jesus today. So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then it goes on to say, "...so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. you please join me in a word of prayer as we ask the Holy Spirit who inspired these very words to be penned by the Apostle Paul many centuries ago who is actively present in our lives now. Let's ask him to illuminate his word to our minds and to our hearts that we can grasp the things God wants to speak to us through it and also enable us to live them out. I also invite you, as I always do, to pray for me as I share God's word with you today, that I might do so in a way that glorifies and honors him. Let us pray. Precious Father, we thank you that you so love this world that you sent your son Jesus to us, not to condemn us, but rather by him and by means of his death on the cross to save us. We ask you to open our minds in a fresh and new way to your word this day, And more importantly, help our hearts be open to hear what your spirit is speaking to us this day. In Jesus' precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, speaking of examining or examinations, at least once a year I go and visit my dermatologist over in Hinsdale, Dr. Kalis. It looks like Kalis, but it's Kalis. I welcome a careful and thorough exam each year, literally from the top of my scalp, to the very soles of my feet. Why? Because as a trained clinician, he can spot an abnormality in an early stage and remove it to prevent it from growing or spreading into something worse. Dr. Kalis likes liquid nitrogen. If you know what that is, it's a tank and a little spray bottle, and he goes nuts on me every time I'm over there, just spraying about 15, 20, you know what I'm talking about if you've had that experience. And you know what? It's somewhat painful at the moment But I know that pain is very well worth the prevention and elimination of potentially dangerous growths on my skin. So today our scripture commands us to examine ourselves. Well, how are we going to go about doing this? Well, I have a few suggestions I think will help us, and I'll share them with us today. Because just like when a physician looks at your skin or any other part of your body, they are comparing it to what normal looks like based on their extensive training in the human anatomy. When we look at ourselves, what measuring stick can we use? Well, we often look at our outer selves, don't we? And we have a sense of what looking good is there. You know, it's only natural that most of us probably look in the mirror at least once before we head out of the house each day. You probably did so this morning. And I'm pretty sure that What your first look in the mirror when you first get out of bed and go to get a cup of water or whatever you do is a very different look by the time you emerge out into public. And what happens then? Well, we make adjustments. We make changes to our outer appearance so that we look our best. We do our best to look our best, like showering and washing our hair shaving or putting makeup and jewelry and clothing to make ourselves presentable to the world. And if we're going to a special event, A special occasion like a wedding or a black tie gala, we go way beyond that. We might order a new dress, evening gown, or get a tuxedo, and definitely new shoes. Got to have new shoes for a special event, and we're definitely ramping it up much further than that. And I guarantee we don't want to have one little thing look out of place when we look in the mirror before an event like that. might even ask your spouse or a friend, how do I look? My wife has asked me that question thousands of times in the 36 years I've known her. And you know what? I've had the same answer every time. You look great, honey. It's, you look beautiful. Because I will not dare say anything but that. But friends, we go to a special event. We also make sure that we're early because we never want to show up late. We would be embarrassed to do so. But friends, what event could possibly be more special than preparing ourselves to come to Jesus at the table, he's prepared for us. You see, Jesus has invited us to dine with him. You know, we take great deal of care of how we look to others in our physical appearance. How much more ought we to be thinking about how Jesus looks upon our hearts? The scriptures tell us in 1 Samuel 16, people look at the outward appearance. We know that. But the Lord, it says, looks at the heart. Our passage says to us in verse 28, I read a moment ago, everybody, not just a few, not if you're just feeling a little bit guilty or feeling better or whatever it is, everyone needs to examine themselves before we partake of the broken body of Jesus and the bread and the shed blood in the cup today. Note carefully, the scriptures does not say examine your spouse. Or examine your kids or your parents or your friends or the person sitting across the aisle here in the sanctuary. That's not your business to examine the hearts of anybody else. We're called to examine our own hearts. I have a couple of simple suggestions of a spiritual mirror that we could actually use every day and especially when we prepare our inner selves to approach the table of the Lord. We're going to go way back into the Old Testament tabernacle experience where God, in very specific details, told Moses exactly how people could and should approach the holy God. He gave him details and ordered him to create, gave us, gave us the law and ordered him to create this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. You may remember this little thing from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you've seen that movie. God wanted to let the Israelites know what he expected and what sin looked like to him. So he gave Moses the law and said, make this ark of the covenant I want us to put the picture of this up there see what it looks like this is a simple box covered in pure gold with on top of it was a mercy seat with carved out or formed angelic cherubim on both the right and left side and that was the mercy seat where God's holy presence dwelt in the very center of the Israelite camp and every year only on one special day was one person allowed into that holy of holies where God's presence, holy presence was. That was the high priest. And that high priest had to be really well prepared. He literally had to wash himself from head to toe. He had to put on exactly the right vestments and garments and headgear. And he had to approach that holy place with one, with one thing, the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed, not just any lamb, a pure and spotless and lamb without defect. He brought that blood into that place to atone for the sins of Israel once a year on the Day of Atonement, which speaks of the Lamb of God who shed his blood for us. Any priest who approached the ark and that mercy seat in an unprepared, unworthy manner would be struck dead instantaneously by God. No one dared to approach that Ark of the Covenant in a casual way. Got so much so that they would tie a rope onto the high priest's leg in case he dropped dead in there. Nobody was going to dare go in after him, and they just dragged him out and laid his body to rest. You see, what's hidden inside that Ark of the Covenant is also very important. In fact, it instructs us as to what's most important to God. This Ark of the Covenant was at the center of the Israelite camp for all the time there in the wilderness and ultimately landed right in the temple eventually when it was built and carried around with it. There were three things in that special place. First of those three things inside the Ark of the Covenant was a pot of manna, a golden pot of manna. Well, remember back in Exodus, when God brought around 600,000 Israelites through the Red Sea out into the desert, like, hey, where's the McDonald's? You know, where's the Starbucks? They're in a the desert. So God sent from heaven every single day manna. He gave the Israelites the food of angels to eat every day. On the Sabbath day, the day before that, they got two days' worth, and we're all allowed to use that over the weekend. The reality is God was providing for the needs of his people, he wants to be Our provider, He gave them what they need, but this speaks to our stewardship as well. God ultimately wanted them, Him, to trust them. He wanted to trust God for His provision, and also to give tithes and offerings back to God. It was very important. He set that standard very early in their experience with Him. Financials, financial matters matter to God. That's why this is in the Ark of the Covenant. You see, there's about 490 verses in the whole Bible that speak directly about faith. That's a lot. Faith is the way in which we connect with God. It's how we come to salvation, putting our faith and trust in Jesus. 490 verses. There's over 500 verses in the Scriptures that speak about prayer, that vital spiritual practice and spiritual connection to God. Very, very important in our lives. But friends, there's over 2,000 verses that speak about money and stewardship from Genesis to Revelation. 288 of them are in the Gospels alone. Nearly 10% of the content of the Gospels speaks about this. This matters to God. The Bible contains more verses dealing with our use and handling of money than it does concerning prayer and faith combined. So that rested in the Ark of the Covenant every place it went. The second thing in there was Aaron's rod. Big stick, walking stick, used it for various things. And that was pretty typical. Moses had one. Others had one in those days. But back in Numbers 17, the Israelites were getting tired of following Moses and Aaron. They're saying, well, we don't need you guys. We don't need you leading us. Who said you're supposed to be in charge? So God instructed Moses to have each of the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel provide a wooden stick, a staff. It's not, no roots on, it's not planted, it's a walking stick. He says, one from every tribe, put the leader's name on the stick and put them in the tent of meeting overnight and watch what I do to show who my chosen authority is. Next morning, they found 11 sticks just sitting there being sticks because that's what sticks do. They lay on the ground, they don't do anything. But Aaron, God's chosen priest, had not only changed a little bit, it had begun to put out branches, leaves, and ultimately overnight, it had blossomed and there was fully mature almonds on a dead stick. God was saying, "This this is my chosen leader. Don't mess with him. By the way, look at the story back in Numbers. That's a time when God opened the earth and swallowed a bunch of people. And a plague started that day also because people had rebelled against God. Authority matters. God's designed authority. It's God's authority first and foremost. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Now, some of you might have had or have differences of opinions about certain political leaders in our country. You love them or hate them or whatever else it might be. Uh, the Roman emperor was a vicious, sadistic, murderous, as unholy person as you could possibly believe be who believed himself to be God and thus he could do anything he wanted capriciously. But God put him in that place, so Peter says, honor him. Peter would die at the hands of of those Roman authorities not long after this. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authority structure God has set up in the nations around the world is his business. How he set that up in the church for governance, how he set it up in households and families is important. God values and expects us to trust and respect him in those matters. But the thing we're most familiar with is the third thing that's in the Ark of the Covenant, which are the stone tablets on which God wrote down the Ten Commandments for Moses when he was on the top of Mount Sinai. This is God's moral code, which was carried around with the rest of these things in this box every place they went. The whole law in the Old Testament was over 600 commands. Many of those were civil laws, like speed limits and taxes and those kind of things we have to the civil laws of the land. None of those apply to us at all. There were dozens, if not hundreds, of ceremonial laws, how to do worship, what the priests were supposed to do, all of that kind of stuff. That no longer applies to us whatsoever, because we are now under the priest of Jesus, and we are a royal priesthood. But then there's the Ten Commandments, the moral code of God, the unchanging moral code summarized in those ten things, which in fact are very much in effect and serves a very specific purpose for us today. We're going to talk quite a bit about this. You know, we know trying to keep the Ten Commandments will never save us. Let's get that established up front. That's why Jesus went to the cross. To save all of us who are breaking God's moral code all the time. We're saved by God's grace plus nothing because of what Jesus did on the cross, giving his body and shedding his blood. But God, our loving Heavenly Father, still hates and is offended personally by every sin we commit. He hates sin. That hasn't changed. But he loves sinners enough to give us his Son as our Savior. Some would like us to believe in our day, that the Ten Commandments just no longer apply to us as Christians because that's an Old Testament thing. But a closer look at Scripture will actually reveal and tell us the fact that nine of these Ten Commandments that you walked by as you walked in the sanctuary and you come and go every Sunday on the east side of the entranceway coming in here, nine of them are repeated, refreshed, or enhanced in the New Testament numerous times and in different ways they carried over into the new covenant. For example, in giving a summary of the moral responsibilities to one another that we have, Jesus repeats five of these ten commandments to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. In the book of Revelation, right before the Bible almost closes, the 22nd chapter of Revelation is the last book. Again, God mentions very specifically four of the ten commandments, saying people doing these things don't get into heaven. So these things are very much in play in the New Testament from the Gospels all the way to the book of Revelation. So friends, let's look into God's mirror together today as we examine ourselves. I'm simply going to read through the Ten Commandments one at a time and make a few comments about them and see how that might apply in our lives. But I want you to hear that your Father, the God of all creation, and the Lord Jesus, who love you completely, are softly beckoning to each and every one of us They yearn for us at a heart level for our full devotion to Him. That's what God is after. And as you listen, as I read through the Ten Commandments, just let's ask ourselves, privately between ourselves and God, am I living in line with the desires of God, uh, even above my own desires? I wanted to remind you something good people still do bad things sometimes, don't we? We all falter. We all fail from time to time. And that's why First John, the Apostle John tells us in First John, there's something we can do about it every time we do. It says this in First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, our sins, he is faithful and he is just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness every time. This is what the communion table is about. Jesus came to save and transform and heal sinners just like you and me. But just because we can be forgiven for sin doesn't mean sin doesn't matter to God or bother him. It does. So the first commandment, worship no God but me. So we're called to worship God alone. And note that this is the first on the top of God's list. He's asking for our worship of him. He actually wants you to hold him in the highest place in your thoughts, our affections, and in our actions. Worship is really about loving God passionately to embrace him with your whole being, and God desires that. Jesus said the Father is looking for people that want to worship him in spirit and in truth. In fact, it says he is seeking for them. Friends, how much time and space do we actually give God in our hearts? That's the real question. Is he first or does he just get the leftovers of our time and energies? If we attend church services once a week for an hour, as many do, that's one out of 168 hours that we're giving to God in that way. I believe he yearns for much more of our heart space and mind space. I believe he deserves more mind space and heart space than social media engagements than surfing on the internet or watching television not out of a compulsion a demand it's a desire that God has because one day friends you're going to be in a worship service with me that never ends <laughs> never ends and you're not going to get bored the second command make no images or statues to bow down to and worship. We're not really into making idols like they did in the Old Testament times, but we do tend to worship certain things. But don't ever make anything. There's nothing we can ever make with our hands that comes close to God, so don't even do it. Third one gets a little closer to home. It says don't use my name in vain or for evil purposes. So don't misuse God's holy name or Jesus' name in an unholy manner manner. Why? Because God's name is special. Hold it gently, affectionately, and with sweetness in your heart and in your mind and upon your lips. Never use his beautiful name as a curse. This wasn't this one doesn't take a whole lot of explanation. Sometimes we get very angry, frustrated, we're seeing red, and we just things come out of our mouth. Even the Lord's name. We need to confess that every time saying, not a compulsion, but a saying, Lord, forgive me. I don't want to do that. Please help me stop. Apologizing to him always ends in us being cleansed of it. The fourth commandment is the Sabbath. That requirement of God to honor one whole day, specifically being Saturdays in our calendar, it's the first day of the week. Um, The reality is that's not in the New Testament. We're called into the rest that Jesus gives us. Still, by all means, in principle, called to devote times to rest in the same way, but it's not an enforced commandment in the New Testament. The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. And you know what? Sometimes we think that's only when we're little kids or teenagers and under our parents' rule and we get to be 18 or 21 or out of the house. We don't have to do that anymore. Well, this is not what this says. This is a lifelong commandment because if you live long enough and many people are living longer and longer now, the roles get reversed over time that many times we, as we get older, are taking care of our parents. And that's God's purpose. A family would take care of the family all the way through life. So this is a lifelong commandment. Then we get to number six. Do not commit murder. And most everybody you know and everybody present here would think, I I can just skip over this one because I've never murdered anybody. Never even thought about it. Let's just skip over that one. But listen to what Jesus has to say about this one. This is, again, one of the ones that gets repeated in the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you're familiar with the commandment taught to those of old. Do not murder or you'll be judged. And all the people, yeah, we know that one. We don't do it, though. But Jesus says, but I'm telling you, If you hold anger in your heart towards a fellow believer, you're subject to judgment. Probably like, oh, that's a little different. And whoever demeans or insults a fellow believer is answerable to the congregation or Sanhedrin in that time. And whoever calls down curses upon a fellow believer, writes them off, is in danger of being sent to a fiery hell. Well, this kind of changes that conversation a bit, doesn't, doesn't it? What kinds of words have we spoken to others that have wounded them, demeaned them, written them off? In the heat of arguments, things come out of our mouths that ought not be said. This one's a biggie to Jesus, requiring more guidance. Here's what Jesus says. So, if you've done any of that stuff, if you're presenting your gift before the altar, which would have also been that altar that we talked about a moment ago, the Ark of the Covenant, in that experience of worship or the temple, you're there at church in the temple and suddenly there you remember a quarrel you have with a fellow believer. Leave your gift there at the altar and go at once to apologize to the one you offended, who is offended. Then after you've reconciled, that sounds so simple, doesn't it? But he says after you've reconciled, come to the altar and present your gift you hear what Jesus, our Savior, the one who laid his life down to save us, says here? This direction is right out of the mouth of Jesus, makes it clear what he wants. Before trying to worship God, first go to a person or every person you know you've offended with your words or your actions and seek to be reconciled with them. word of caution here, this does not mean if someone doesn't want to talk to you, that's their issue. If it's somebody that doesn't want to be reconciled, That's their issue. What Jesus is saying if you know you've done something, even if in the argument or conflict you were 99% right and only 1% wrong, which always we think we are, right? That 1%, if you said things to demean or curse another person, you do your part. Leave the rest to God. Go and say that you're sorry. When we have used our words to wound or belittle, or write off another person. We must go to that person. This is a non-negotiable with Jesus. And then we come back, and God will say, yes, now two people are healed. When there's been harsh words spoken, hearts are wounded, and God feels it, even if the other person doesn't say they're sorry. You have now cleansed your heart and done what Jesus said, and you can experience his healing. The next one, Says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery, which means to have sexual relations with anyone other than your spouse if you're married. And if you're single and have sex with a married person, that is wrong because you're violating that covenant of marriage. Sad to say, this one has become rampant in our society, and even sad to say, sometimes amongst Christians. Jesus took this one up several notches also in verses 27 and 28 in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, quoting the the seventh commandment. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or man lustfully has already committed adultery with them in their heart. Wow. This applies both ways. There's no loopholes. So looking lustfully means as Billy Graham once clarified looking at a woman or a man imagining then having sexual relations with them in your mind and given the chance you would actually want to do it with them supplies to pornography which is rampant and so easily accessible And sad to say even children find themselves having access to this bane in our society and thus this is all over the place To a culture that espouses the value that if it feels good, do it. Jesus says, if I say it's wrong, and I'm God, I mean it. And if you're doing it, stop doing it. He gives very strict restrictions after this. When he says, if your right hand is causing you to sin in this adulterous, uh, fornicating, sexual way, cut it off. If your right eye is causing it, cut it off. Serious, drastic measures are needed. Sexual addictions are at an all-time high in our world. This is ruining marriages and households everywhere. If you're committing adultery, as Jesus defines it, confess it to him. Ask for his help to stop today. If you're in an adulterous relationship, break it off today. And by all means, get help. The eighth commandment is don't steal. Don't take what belongs to another person. I suspect there's no one in this circle here today that's shoplifting on a regular basis, trying to hide clothes under your other clothes. Because, you know, clothing stuff always had tags on them. You're going to get caught at the door and get prosecuted for it. This is about stealing people's ideas, stealing creative things that you've heard advance your career over somebody else. God says, don't, don't take from somebody else what belongs to them. Some years back, my brother was in a fourth-grade classroom. Smartest kid in the class was a young man named John Metesky. I mean, John Schroeder. And Tom Metesky sat right next to him. His desk was intentionally next to him, off to one side. And every time there was a test, Tom Metesky was copying off of John Schroeder. On one occasion, and John Schroeder always oh, got 100% on his tests. On one occasion, Tom Metesky very carefully copied every single thing on John Schroeder's test, including his name. He put John Schroeder's name on the top of his test and he was busted. He got an F instead of an A. Jesus says, don't steal. If you have stolen, make amends. Give the money back. Make it right. The Ninth Commandment says, don't bear false witness and don't accuse anybody falsely, which is about lying. We sometimes like to bend the truth a little bit, right? Ah, it's just a a white lie. Where did that term even come from? A lie is a lie. If we're seeking to deceive somebody to avoid consequences for our actions or to avoid getting caught in doing something, that's why we do it. But the Scriptures tell us lying is a sin that we need to stop doing. This one goes all the way to that passage in Revelation chapter 21 I mentioned. On the list of Ten Commandments of people that don't get into heaven, it says it. Go look it up. Revelation 21.8. Liars are on that list. Adulterers are on that list. Murderers are on that list right there at the end of all things. The tenth commandment don't covet what belongs to another person, which coveting means to feel an inordinate desire for what belongs to one another, or to yearn for or wish for earnestly. And it's just two specific things the passage goes on to say don't covet your neighbor's house. If you drive through your neighborhood and see this, gorgeous, big, huge house and there's plenty of those around the western suburbs of Chicago and makes your house look like a shack. Don't covet that. It's a lot higher utility bills for one thing. Lots more time to care for it and clean it and maintain it and they're paying more in taxes. Be satisfied with what you have. Second thing it says, don't covet, is your neighbor's wife or spouse. Two times out of ten commandments that God sums up his moral code he hits on that same sin twice, that really matters to God. Friends, let's always remember as we've looked through this long list of things that God's love language is obedience. Jesus said in John chapter 15, if you love me, you will obey me. Not if you love me, you'll do whatever you want, sin all you want and come back to me and confess and hope things okay. If you love me, you'll obey me is God's love language. My friends, the New Testament believers like you and I are free from the bondage of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been set free. It allows us to freely live out the Ten Commandments, which is really great news. But it also means that we no longer have any excuse for going astray and painting outside the lines all the time. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and to say no to things that God says are wrong brilliant theologian Helmut Tillichy some years back, he likens the moral code of the Old Testament, the law, to a sheepdog. I don't know if any of you have a sheepdog. I think they're cute. Some of them, in fact, I like Australian shepherd dogs. They're super smart. But we're no longer compelled to follow the law as a means of our salvation. That's an impossible task. We are free to follow the shepherd of the sheep who is Jesus Christ. However, and our yet-to-be-perfected state, we all tend to take our eyes off Jesus way too often and wander off the straight and narrow one direction or the other. We, like sheep, drift away, and the sheepdog of the law reminds us by nipping at our heels that we're headed in the wrong direction and points us back to the shepherd and keeps us safely in the flock. Tilke puts it this way, for in performing its task, the law in reminding us continually of things omitted or forgotten, it no longer kills us. Instead, it's friendly. It helps us. After all, the sheepdog is anything but a wolf. The wolf kills things. The sheepdog tries to protect us from it. Well, maybe you felt the sheepdog nipping at your heels just a little bit as we've read through these scriptures today. I know I felt a lot of that as I prepared this sermon over the last week or so. Friends, when we turn from our sinful thoughts and attitudes and desires and turn our gaze back to Jesus, he awaits and is ready to hear our confession of our failings and our sins. In this way, we come clean to Jesus. We show proper honor and respect for who he is and the great sacrifice he went to, laying his own life down so that we could be cleansed and forgiven for our sins. When we confess to Jesus, we're agreeing with him that, yes, we wanted to do and could have done better and that we didn't live up to a standard we want to maintain. But the very instant that we acknowledge this to him, he warmly embraces us, lifts us up, encourages us to move forward to be the new person, the Christ-like person that God has created us to be. When we come to Jesus, Jesus, it's confession, never condemnation. God sees all the potential he has sown in us and wants to bring the best out of us, not condemn the worst. It's correction, not rejection. It's Jesus saying, yes, leave that behind and let me show you the best way going forward. That's what that interchange is about. It's cleansing. Let me wash you and make you completely clean because I want you close to me, not about punishment. I come back to one more time what John the Apostle tells us. The one who's closest to Jesus relationally appears in the Scriptures about confession of sin. If we say we have no sin, he says we're liars. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just. And every time he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to invite us now to take a few moments to open our hearts to Jesus to confess our sins and things we feel guilty about, to make a very healthy self-assessment before him, just between us and him. Friends, I'm going to invite you to join me in praying this prayer together on the screen. Lord, enlighten what is dark in me. Strengthen what is weak in me. Mend what is broken in me. Heal what is bruised in me. Revive whatever peace and love has died in me. In Jesus' precious name, amen.